office one morning and I, I felt the line for the scripture come to me, um, Elijah, what are you doing in there? And so I went and looked it up and I, I was so impacted by the whole story that happened when God actually questioned Elijah twice, what are you doing in there? And he was in a cave. And it just in light of the whole season that we're in and just so many things, it's like everyone starts getting in these caves because of all the things going on. But Elijah was really at the lowest point in his life. And he had, it was actually right after the whole contest on Mount Carmel. And it was like he had done everything that could be done, that God had been proven. And he, he went and he hid in a cave and he said, let me die. I, I've done everything, just let me die. And God said to him, what are you doing in there? And he said, come out of that cave because I'm about to pass by. And it just got to me that that was the moment that God was going to come face to face with Elijah. And so he went and he stood in the mouth of the cave. And when God came by, he said to him again, what are you doing in there? And then God gave him this assignment, you know. And he said, go anoint Hazael, king of Iraq. Go anoint Jehu, king of Israel. Go anoint Elisha, prophet after you. And, and go in haste. And he began to go and he did these things. And I started thinking about how, you know, Jehu is the one who annihilated the idols in Israel. He tore down the idol in Bethel and in Dan. And Elisha was the man who performed more miracles than anyone except the Lord. And it was like just the time you think you're done. God is giving you the biggest mission of your life. And he's saying, no, you are not done. You have not proven me yet. I'm going to give you something that's going to go so much beyond you. If you would just When Brother Jake was speaking earlier about the impossible and the song, some of the songs we sung today made me start to feel something. And, you know, I think we so often look at the circumstances around us and we, we want to believe that those circumstances are the problem in the first place. And we want to believe that God is somehow going to change those circumstances circumstances. So we believe him, in a sense, to do that. We trust him to work something in our surroundings, maybe even through us participating somehow to, to bring that change to pass. But we often do not contemplate the magnitude of the change that he's asking for inside. And when Sister Amanda was speaking there about Elijah, it was like Part of what I heard in that was the Lord saying to him, you know, you're in the cave because you're assuming that your role in this has already been defined and somehow passed on. And now it's, you know, there's nothing else that can really be done because of the circumstance. And yet God was saying to him, if you would change your attitude that has you in the back of that cave, the circumstances are going to take care of themselves. It's the sense that we, we don't see a lot of times just how big of a change God wants to work in us. And, and in a sense, how could we do that? How could we see it? Because 
we're limited naturally by what we already see or what we already know. And so our plausibility structures that you mentioned, Brother Jake, those things, we, we have the projections for the future based upon the trajectory of what we perceive as the past and the present limitations. And then we draw our dots after that. And so in Elijah's case, his trajectory was, well, here was this and here was that and God used me and this happened. But now that has happened and that has happened. And well, amen, I guess it's time to resign myself to the back of this cave. I'm not giving up. I'm not losing out with God. I'm not, you know, whatever. But obviously, this is where the dots are leading. And the Lord was saying, would you quit saying obviously? Would you let me define what is supposed to be happening in your life and what the trajectory really is? Because you do not know what the coordinates really are. I told uh, Brother Isaac yesterday... There are obviously big step going on there. I assume everybody here knows about that. If you don't know about that, you can raise your hand. But anyway, that's what I thought. So Isaac and Helen are embarking upon a, a, a very new stage. I told him and I told her to that looking back on, on my life in, in that beginning, you know, I expected to learn things about my spouse that I had never seen before. I knew enough to know that there were going to be unfolding surprises and wonders, really, about who is this person exactly that I'm coming to know on a completely different level. And boy, was that true. But you know, you can't completely anticipate surprises. You can say, well, I know I'm going to be surprised, but... If you really knew everything about it, you wouldn't be surprised. So there's always something about it that surprises you. But what I told him was what I was completely unprepared for was the things I was going to learn about myself. The surprises I was going to encounter that this in myself as the newness of what God was calling me into, the unknown, unfamiliar territory that he had called me into, as that began to unfold I begin to change in ways that I had never imagined myself changing. I felt things I didn't know I could or would feel. And that's the hard part to anticipate. And that's the promise of God that I feel for us here today. Amen. Do not project into the future, however long or short, good or bad you think that future is. Do not project into the future that you are going to be the same person that you are today. Whether you're 9 or 90, don't assume that it's over. I remember Brother Blair says in the 25th anniversary slide presentation, you should not assume that you will end the journey the same person that began. And that's true whether you're in the final lapse of your journey or the first ones. There are still 7,000 that the Lord may want you to have a profound influence upon. Praise you, Jesus. I read something recently that Brother Blair had ministered probably 25, 30 years ago. And he, this is going to seem like a, an offshoot, but you, I'm going to tie it together. He was talking about nonviolence and the, how the Lord brought us to our position on nonviolence and the light that has shone on the pathway at various stages of that journey. 
he remembered George Orwell was a pacifist before World War II. And um, he was kind of a, Brother Blair said he was a principled pacifist. He believed this is the way the world should be and so forth. But then when World War II happened and the Holocaust, the nature of it, the overwhelming nature of the crisis and the flood of evil and what it revealed about humanity and what was in people's hearts was so much for him that he felt like it defeated all of the answers that he once had and the reasons for why he held to his position. And so he abandoned it. After the Holocaust, he said, nonviolence is futile. I was wrong. Now, that's a little different than the stand that we take, isn't it? That's not exactly a conviction from God, is it? If the way that you believe and the way that you feel and the way you're committed to react to circumstances in your life is just holding on until you reach a point where things are too overwhelming and then you change or you give up or you stop and fall short. And what Brother Blair shared there was, he said, you know, when I came to God and was filled with the Holy Spirit of love, it honestly never occurred to me after that moment that such a thing as a real authentic Christian could ever exert violent force against another person. I was so overwhelmed. I was so constitutionally changed that it was beyond contemplation for me that, such, that, that I could participate in that or that any truly spirit-filled believer who was filled with the spirit of love and forgiveness and peace could ever engage in that kind of action. And he said, I feel like there is a difference between a principled nonviolent position and a nonviolent position that grows out of a nature inside of us. He said, the one is like a lion who is able to think and reason and, and eventually is talked into the idea that he should be a pacifist, though he's still a lion. And on the other hand, the dove that is intrinsically peaceful and incapable of causing harm. And he said, I felt like I had been turned from a lion into a dove. I hadn't been talked into something. I had changed in my essence by a heart transplant from God. These are my words, but that, that was the essence of what he was saying. Thank you, Jesus. You see the difference? And that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about this morning. You know, we, we can look at our life, at our circumstance, at our place, at our calling, at our ideas about what the future does or does not hold, about what is or is not possible, and we think of it in terms of, well, what can I manage to convince this lion inside of me to do or to be? And God has a different solution for that. He wants to transform that lion into a dove where it's coming from your heart, you're not just saying it or doing it because you think or you know that that's what you're supposed to do or that's what the Bible says, <laughs> but you actually feel it. You actually live it and believe it and love it. Thank you, Jesus. And that is an enormous difference. Thank you, Jesus. But there's a leap involved with that kind of change, isn't there? Because we don't know how to get there. We're used to somehow trying to study our way into that, to discipline ourselves into that, and yet that's not the pathway into a total change of nature. That pathway only comes through what Brother Jason mentioned and others today, total surrender. 
God, I'm just here. I've got to yield. <laughs> I, I need the strong man inside of me is going to rule my house as long as he is in charge. And until something stronger than that strong man comes along and binds him up and takes away his armor, and takes the throne in my life, then I'm always going to be under bondage to this strong man. I can try to tie him up and, and try to work on him and try to talk to him. And, but until some overwhelmingly different force and power and nature comes into my life, this is an exercise in futility. And what I'm proposing to you today is that there are yet those kinds of changes in front of every single one of us on our pathway to become what God has called us to become. Thank you, Jesus. And sometimes what we view as the biggest defeats are only the biggest reductions to date in our life that he's trying to use to get us to stop trusting in ourselves, stop making assumptions about what we are or are not, and open our eyes wide and our hearts wide to receive the impossible, to believe that we could actually think and feel and love differently than we have before, though we don't know what that feels or thinks or looks like yet. Yet we have this faith. We don't hope for what we see. And we believe because of what we have seen and because of what we do feel and the deposit in our hearts of what God has already done, the burning that we feel when he speaks his word to us, that tells us there's more to come. Thank you, Jesus. 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 It would not require faith if we knew what it looked like or what was supposed to happen. Thank you, Jesus. God doesn't always spell it all out for us, and that's really for our own good. We think it would be so much easier and so much better if he would just show us all those steps, and then we wouldn't have to have so much fear and anxiety and and all that, because we could just be confident in all the steps he'd already made plain to us. But the problem is, then we'd be real tempted to do it without him. And he knows that's not our good. <laughs> he knows that it's best for us to know that we need him. We need to feel that walking on water kind of feeling that you just need to surrender and yield and get up and do it and trust God that he's going to do the work that he has inspired in the first place. Thank you, Jesus. I came with this passage on my heart. We sang this song last night at the beginning of the baptism. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all of my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. So he's just said that we've been delivered from all of our fears and then he says that the Lord delivers those who fear him. He's contrasting two types of fear, obviously, isn't he? He's saying there is a fear of God that really means not a, not a terror of the austere master, but rather 
a standing in awe of the greatness of God and a consciousness of his sovereignty and his plan and his will that we need to walk in in our life. And he's those who feel that way, the Lord looks upon as a father to his children and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no lack among those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life, loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And that's what I want to share a little bit about with you today. Seeking and pursuing peace in our lives. So let's talk for a second about peace. What is peace? What exactly is peace? Brother Shahar says it's wholeness. Anybody want to add to that or, or contest that? Be careful before you contest it. It's true to me, but to me it's when you don't have that cognitive dissonance going on where part of you is being this way and your, your thoughts and your words or your actions and your words aren't quite lining up and, or your, your actions and your neighbor's actions and there's all this dissonance that starts coming into place. That is what fractures peace. But when you, when all things come together in that wholeness and unity, then you have peace. Amen. So it's, Sister Amanda is explaining why peace could be called wholeness. Where there is harmony, you can let go of the tension and the dissonance in your life. Where there's discord and fighting and competition and unrest and anxiety, amen, you've got multiple things competing inside your soul, in your heart, right? Anybody else? Finding your place brings peace. Thank you, Jesus. Do you want to explain, Brother Shahar, from a Hebrew perspective, why you might have answered that way? I'm just guessing that that might have had something to do with it. <coughs> the word shalom, which is peace, is also come from the root word shalem, which is wholeness. The word Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, it's also from the same that they shall see peace. That's what the city of God is. It's a place where people can come and see and experience peace. Amen. So the very word in Hebrew comes from the same root as wholeness or completeness, healing. It can mean perfect, 
Everything is in its place. Everything is in orbit. Thank you, Jesus. So, did Jesus come to bring peace? You knew I was going to ask one of those questions, didn't you? He said both, didn't he? So how do we reconcile those two seemingly contradictory statements? I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. What kind of sword was he talking about? He was encouraging us to be violent, wasn't he? Encouraging us to take up arms for the gospel. Anybody remember the actual passage? That it's exactly what Brother Mike is saying. What was he talking about when he said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword? He said, I came to set a father against his son and a son against his father. That's right. It seemed like in light of Brother Mike saying that the relationships that are the closest to us are going to be the ones that reveal the most about this conflict inside of it. Amen. He came to set a man against his children and husbands against their wives and all those. He starts talking about family relationships there. In one of the Gospels, he doesn't say a sword, by the way. He says division in the parallel gospel. So he's not saying a physical sword. He's using sword figuratively. And he's saying, I didn't come to bring peace, but division. For the man, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, he's not really describing a situation that he hopes will happen, is he? He's not saying, I can't wait to get down here and cause discord among people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that's not going to be the result, amen, that when, when the verdict comes, when the crisis comes, as he said in John 3, and light comes into the world, we're going to have a conflict because men love darkness, amen. And so when the light starts shining, darkness is shown up for what it is. When people start following the truth and doing the will of God, when Abel offers a, a right sacrifice, Cain starts to hate him and wants to kill his brother. And that always happens. Division always comes when there are steps forward, and it always is, persecution is always coming from those who want to stay behind. So he's not saying you're not going to have problems you're not going to have conflicts, and he wanted us to know that if we're expecting that everything's going to go great because we're following him, we're expecting the wrong thing. He's saying you can expect conflict and division, and you can expect it right in your own home. So you better be ready for it. You better be prepared for it, and you better be willing to bring the real peace of God to bear in your home by recognizing what the problem is and being willing to deal with it. Yet he also told us, this has already been said, Brother Mike said it, Brother Jake referenced Jesus, also said that he came to bring peace to us, but not as the world gives. Does anybody remember the Pentagon's definition of peace? The temporary suspension of hostilities. Yeah. The Pentagon's official definition of peace is the temporary cessation of hostility, or they, they call it Pre-hostility. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound to me like the resolution of all conflict. That just sounds like some kind of truce as we, while the clock ticks on the fuse. But it's pretty accurate, isn't it? If you want to talk about peace as the world gives, peace that even can be achieved through the, the sword of the flesh, that's a pretty good definition. And if you're, you were in the Pentagon, you would be foolish to think otherwise because then you'd be unprepared for the fact that something is going to be breaking any day all over the world. But Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, I give to you. He said, because in the world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, or other versions say, but take heart or have courage Amen. This is something in your heart, not just in your head that, well, I know God is more powerful. This is something you feel. Take courage in your heart, for I have overcome the world. And we know that we are more than overcomers through him who loved us. Thank you, Jesus. So we're going to have peace in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of the division and the tension that is around us in our circumstance, there's going to be something in our soul that is at rest. If your version of peace is the temporary cessation of your anxieties and your worries in the flesh, but, you know, you've just put them on the shelf, it's more comfortable to know that they're there so that you can get them back down again when you need them tomorrow. You know, but right now, no, I'm supposed to have peace but you'd hate to completely get rid of them, wouldn't you? Come on, admit it. There's something in your heart that says, to completely let go of my, my anxieties means to completely let go of my striving to control the situation. And I'm not sure I want to do that yet. <laughs> I would like to reserve the option to worry about this again. Because what if it gets to a point where my preference for pacifism is overwhelmed by a circumstance that is uh, greater than I anticipated, and I need to resort to the sword of the flesh and start chopping off somebody's ear in the spirit of helpfulness? Do you understand what I'm saying? There is something in us that is afraid to completely surrender and yield to the stronger man. Thank you, Jesus. To be taken in a way that we would not go. To let the Spirit war against the flesh until we are doing things we never thought we'd do. Thank you, Jesus. Because we're so accustomed to that old master, and we're so accustomed to trusting him to at least try to make the best of it. I mean, that's always the argument, even for uh, violent defense of loved ones and so forth, is I know I might fail, but, but you at least got to try. There's something ignoble about you if you won't at least try to make some attempt to rescue somebody in the flesh. And if you don't do that, then you're not a real man. So the argument goes. It's just, that's just a confession of faithlessness, really, and a total misunderstanding of what a real man is in God's eyes. You see what I mean? 
because it's, it's saying, I mean, I believe in prayer and everything until it gets right down to it. And then, I mean, you got to do something, meaning I've got to resort to something that I can do. And I'm not going to completely depend upon God. When push comes to shove, I'm going to shove. <laughs> I'm not going to yield. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I'm not really talking to you about nonviolence today. Well, maybe I am. Maybe it'll help somebody with that too. But we're talking about the dove nature that God wants us to have, not just in violent conflict, but in all the warring in our hearts and in our minds, the nature of the dove that he wants to place inside of us. Peter says... He draws a direct connection. Brother Ossi has ministered this before, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. Brother Ossi has drawn a direct connection between anxiety and pride. Amen. That there is a connection between being anxious and being worried and not being at peace and a position of pride. Does anybody want to share with us why that would be so? Jason? Um, Fear fuels the fleshly desire to defend itself. So fear is what would, would want you to put up this defense. And that ultimately that's exalting yourself, defending your image, uh, which is pride. So fear is connected to pride, and anxiety obviously is connected to fear. Fear is connected to pride because pride has to do with who we think we are, what we think we deserve, and everything about me that's worth defending and, and pursuing and, and striving for. And anxiety comes into the picture when, when we feel like we've got to stand up for this guy that we think highly of. Do you follow that? Now, we don't like to think of it that way. We tend to think of anxiety as something to be pitied. Oh, poor darling, you know, they're, they're very worried about the future, and it's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. Instead of recognizing that, what are we so anxious to defend here? And I'm not saying this is as a blanket statement for every apprehension that a person may feel. I know there are things that we should worry about, right? But anxiety has a certain sense to it, doesn't it? Now, there's a connection here. Peter makes a connection, First Peter 5. He says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're out of grace, <laughs> you may need a little more humility. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your cares or anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. You see it? A direct connection between trusting God and a humility that brings grace. James in chapter 3 says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And he goes on to talk about where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires and the things that you want and the things you, you don't obtain and you want to have it but you don't ask? Or if you ask, you ask with the wrong motives? So you're anxious, aren't you? You're not making peace. There's not peace in your heart. People don't feel peace around you. May I ask you, when you come into a room, do you bring peace with you? Amen? Or do you bring a certain kind of tension where people feel like, 
why do I feel like there's some kind of competition going on as soon as this person comes into this context? Why do I feel like somebody's got something to prove here? Why do I got the feeling that somebody is fearful and worried and anxious? And even if there is a facade of calm, cool, and collected, it's all trying to project something because I'm worried about what I'm going to get or not get or have or not have. Or does, does your presence, do your words, does your spirit bring a sense of trust in God, a sense of rest and peace and a lack of striving? You see the difference? Thank you, Jesus. So James goes right into where do these wars and fights come from, and then he immediately says, God resists the proud, same thing Peter said, but gives grace to the humble. There's a connection there. I think God wants to take us somewhere with this. You remember the end of the psalm that I read to you said, to pursue peace. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hebrews 12 and 4 tells us, pursue peace with all people, not just your friends. Pursue peace with all people. I would suggest to you that the the place where we need to pursue it the most is in the place where it is the hardest. The place where we want to say that it's someone else's fault that I don't have it. God wants you to be a peacemaker. Pursue peace with all people in holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Romans 14 and 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. This has to do with your place, like DK said. You remember my father's child? The peace that comes from knowing who you are, from letting your father define your identity and laying down our striving of what that's supposed to be or how it's going to work out. If you want to be a son of God, then become a peacemaker Not just, I'm going to have peace in my soul, but I have a responsibility to bring peace into this world. You say, well, Brother Dan, you just said, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. There's going to be division in the family. He was warning us that that's going to be the natural consequence, so you better be prepared to be a peacemaker. Amen? He wants that peace to come through us in full awareness of the conflicts that rage all around us. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But I've overcome the world, and so you can too. You can be an agent of peace that is not just passivity. Peace is not just ceasing from striving. I think the peace of God is an active thing. It is wholeness. If we place it in its positive sense, it has a wholeness. It has a substance to it. It's not just an absence. You see what I mean? Peace isn't just, oh, good, I feel nothing. Is that the peace of God? I feel complete peace. My my mind and heart are empty and dry and barren. Praise God, I'm so peaceful. That isn't it, is it? We're not trying to get into some kind of nirvana mindlessness. (laughs) The peace of God is an active positive force in our life. It is the strong man that displaces 
It is the stronger man that displaces the strong man of of worry and anxiety and concern and competition and all those other things. So we're not going to overcome those other things by just, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to fret. That's not it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to ignore the conflict. Those places where I know I get agitated, I'm just going to hide from them. I'm just going to go to bed. (laughs) That's not the peace of God, is it? Colossians 3, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. The peace of God is a ruling power and authority in our lives. The word here, as I understood it when I looked it up, is like it's an arbitrator. It is a decision maker in your life. What does the peace of God that reigns in my heart, that rules my life, what is it? commanding me to do in this circumstance. You remember Isaiah, that his name shall be called the Prince of Peace, a ruler whose very character is peace, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. There is an authority and a power that brings that peace to bear in your life. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord most of the time. Again, I will say rejoice. (laughs) He seems to think we have need of hearing that message. Rejoice in the Lord always, at all times. That's how that psalm started that I read you. I will bless the Lord at all times. You may not get your anxiety off the shelf. You're supposed to be rejoicing. Something else is in its place in your life. Let your gentleness be known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Guard your hearts and minds. That's a military term, you see. Isaiah 26 and 3, you will keep him in perfect peace. Shalom, shalom, I think it says in the Hebrew. Perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. There is a faith and a confidence in the power, the active, positive power of God that allows us to live in this place. Jeremiah 17, you know this one too. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will never have heat or drought. 
Did I get it right? He will not fear when the heat comes. There's going to be heat, but your roots are into some kind of source that though you have tribulation in this world, it does not affect your core vitality. The sap is still running in your life. Your leaves and your fruit are still coming. You will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will it cease from yielding fruit. Thank you, Jesus. God is trying to give us something that is for now, and it is for the year of drought that's ahead. Okay? Ephesians 6, when Paul describes to us the armor of God that he tells us we got to put on if we would resist our enemy and, and be victorious, be overcomers, in that he says that we have to shod our feet, shoe our feet, which is for a journey, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, why does he say the gospel of peace? How does the gospel bring us peace? Gospel means good news. Do we, do we just feel the peace because God tells us, it's okay, everything's going to be fine. Ah, good news. Now I feel peace because God has assured me there will not be any trials. Is that what the gospel is? The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection. And it's that fact that we've already died. That thing, you know, we've buried it. And when the conflict comes, we have peace. We already know the answer. We're going to keep walking through the trials. Amen. That's exactly right. Paul said there's no other gospel than the one he preached, and he defined it as the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Bible also tells us in Thessalonians and in Peter that we have to not just believe the gospel but obey it. And that means that we, too, participate in the death and the burial and the resurrection. That's the good news. And if our feet are shod with that, that we have obeyed the gospel then the conflict is already over. We are already an overcomer in our essence. We have become the dove if we are living in the gospel. We are the sons of God because we've been born again. We're the peacemakers. There is something about our nature and our confidence that has been transplanted from ourselves and transplanted into that tree by the water where we know that our faith is not in ourselves, we're as good as dead. But we judge him who promised to be faithful. So no matter what comes, we don't think it's strange when the fiery trials come upon us. We know that the testing of our faith is going to produce something more precious than gold. Thank you, Jesus. There is something about us where the battle is already over. Now it's just a matter of being faithful to the truth that we don't just know in our heads, we have experienced and lived. Now, as Jesus drew near, this is Luke 19, as he drew near, he saw the city. This is Jerusalem, the city of peace, Jerusalem, a very ironic name for one of the most conflicted places on earth that one day is still going to see peace. He saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known... Even you, especially in this 
your day the things that would make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days are coming upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And we know the other passages where it speaks about Jesus speaking about Jerusalem. And he said, how often... I have longed to gather you underneath my wing as a mother hen would gather her chicks, but you were not willing. Jerusalem, you stoned the prophets and you killed those who were sent to you. You're not going to see my face until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings the gospel, who proclaims tidings of peace. They didn't like the prophets because the prophets brought the gospel. (laughs) And the gospel, the good news, is the death and the burial and the resurrection, that if we would die, if we would be born again, we would know what would really bring peace. It wouldn't be a temporary cessation of hostilities. We would come into a place where our nature had been changed and born again. And if we lose that, then the answer is to get back there, back to the place where you know you didn't fight, you weren't in competition, you weren't anxious, you knew your life was in God's hands, you knew your children, your parents, your spouse were in the hands of God, and that if you would just be a son of God, if you would be a peacemaker, if you would pursue peace, If you would do your part actively to yield in that active sense by saying, God, how can I bring your peace? Can I bring good tidings, good news of peace? Can I be the one to yield in an active way here? And it would come from your heart. Well, I know the right thing to do in this circumstance, and I'm going to just, I just got to discipline myself and and do it, remind myself. That only goes so far. It's got to come from your heart. You're anxious and worried about your spouse. I don't know if I can trust my spouse. You know, there's been so many problems and everything, and I I just feel like I've got to keep my thumb on top of it. No, you don't. You need to trust God. You need to come to the place where you know that you are a child of God, that you are in God's hands, that your striving has ceased, and you can trust God with their life with your family, and that God is going to give you what's needed. It's not going to be through our striving that we fix these things up and make them work. So we're talking about the things that make for our peace. Do we know what they are, or are we blinded? The Lord's arm is not too short, Brother Gary read to us or quoted to us, that he cannot save But your sins have separated you from God and hidden his face from you, his essence, his nature. So how are we going to get there? I'm going to strive a little harder. I know I'm not a peaceful person. I need to try harder. No. Well, are we going to go inert? Are we going to go limp? Are we going to get calm, cool, and collected? 
We know that's not the answer, is it? Jesus says in John 14, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He's telling us how it's going to come, isn't he? Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I'm coming back to you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Paul says the, right, the, the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace through the Holy Spirit. That's the transplanted nature that God wants to bring to us. You remember what he says in Hebrews 4? This is my last scripture. He talks to us about today if you hear his voice, if this is the day of your visitation, don't miss it. Don't harden your heart. Don't stick in your mind. But if this is your day of visitation, don't wander in the wilderness. Don't wander around in the desert where he who trusts in man dwells and doesn't even see when the good is coming to him. But open your heart. Thank you, Jesus. He says there remains a rest, a promise for the people of God. If Joshua had given them the perfect rest and everything was finished, he would not speak of another day and another promise. And then he says, for he who has ceased from his own labors has entered into his rest, the Sabbath rest of God. Therefore, let us labor to enter his rest. There is a certain kind of laboring and striving and pushing and worrying that we have got to stop. And then there is a labor. God, I've got to get into the place where you are ruling in my heart, where I have surrendered. Surrender is what brings peace. Hostility is going to continue until you surrender to the greater power until you lay down your weapons, lay down your arms, lay down your thoughts and your ideas and your strategies and your plans for how you're going to do better. And God, I just need to get into the place where you are. I need to believe that my nature can be changed, that we're not just trying to renovate the guy or the, or the sister that I already think that I am and get myself to do this. I need to yield into your careful hands and let you do the work in me. I've got to be born again. I've got to come into that place where I have no control because I have ceded all control to God. It says in Isaiah, this is the rest. This is the refreshing. For with unknown tongues and stammering lips, I will speak to this people. Paul quotes that in Corinthians in reference to the infilling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There is a yielding of control to God. It's the only thing that can bring us that peace. And it's a control and an authority that wants to reign in our lives and guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. 
He is my light, my strength, and my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled and when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. No fear in life, no fear in death. Jesus commands my destiny. We've got to yield our way into his presence until we know that the Holy Spirit of peace is reigning. The Prince of Peace is reigning. We're surrendering the conflict. We're giving up the war. We're giving up the striving. And we're getting back into the place. Oh God, I'm coming out of my cave. I'm not sitting in here anymore. I'm not looking at the circumstances. I'm believing that you might want to use me to change it. But not in the flesh, but in your spirit. I know I don't have the word. I don't have the grace. I don't have the love. I don't have the power, but you do. So I'm coming to you, God, in prayer. I'm coming to yield. I'm coming to seek peace. I'm coming to pursue righteousness. Amen. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Thank you, Jesus, God. Thank you, Jesus, God. Do you know what would make for your peace today? If you do, don't miss the day of your visitation. And it's not going to get better by itself. Your enemies may be building embankments around you. Don't wait till you're surrounded from every side. But know what would make for your peace in the day of your visitation.